0: of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, And in the process get to know God in a deeper way welcome to prophecy seminar the book of Daniel here is your host pastor David price
1: well good evening friends it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you tonight to our Daniel and Revelation prophecy seminar it'll be uh, mostly on Daniel tonight and uh, thank you for joining us for prophecy seminar lesson number 13 You know, often as Christians, we're asked by friends, neighbors, and workmates, is the Bible true? And maybe when you've been asked that, you've wondered how best you can communicate to them that the Bible is actually true. Tonight's lesson is going to answer that question in a great way. Secondly, we're going to answer the question, is God concerned with time and where we're living in these last days? So I hope that those things will be of interest and blessing to you tonight. We're going to discover tonight what date Jesus Christ was born, did he begin his ministry on time, and what date was he actually baptised, and did the Bible predict the date of his crucifixion, and why was the Jewish nation rejected by God after nearly 500 years of mercy, and is God concerned with being on time? Gracious Heavenly Father, I'd like to thank you for all the previous times that we've prayed for wisdom and understanding, and thank you for the preciousness of your word. Again tonight, we believe that before we open your word, we need to pray and humbly ask for the gift and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a special anointing, as we open your word tonight in Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 to understand your amazing prophecies, and I thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in a powerful and mighty way. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Friends, um, before we begin tonight's lesson, I'd just like to remind you where we've been in the last four sessions. So in Prophecy Seminar Lesson number nine, we looked at the little horn power that came out of Daniel 7. In Prophecy Seminar Lesson number 10, we looked at can the little horn change God's law? We looked at the Ten Commandment Law and uh, we also looked at how precious that law is and how it fits into our lives today. In Lesson 11, we continued on the theme of how the little horn power had actually changed God's law. And then in our last session, which was Prophecy Seminar Lesson number 12, We finished the segment on the little horn power, although there's a little bit more tonight, and we asked, did God actually authorize the little horn power to change his seventh day Sabbath? So thanks for joining us tonight. We are looking at lesson number 13, which you can see there on the screen. I'm going to share with you from the top of page two and read to you the introduction. And if you've done your lesson, I want you to kick back, sit back and enjoy the visual feed thanks so much for joining us for this prophecy seminar lesson 13. in the next three lessons which is tonight's daniel's longest time prophecy next week and next session in number 14 what is the sanctuary and then in session 15 daniel's prediction of the judgment and so in the next three lessons we will unravel one of the most amazing and fascinating prophecies in the entire book of Daniel. It will reveal an event now transpiring in heaven that clearly indicates the approaching end of earth's history. It will reveal an event that's occurring in heaven right now, which brings exceeding good news to God's people, but exceedingly bad news for the little horn power. The message of Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 is the climax of the message revealed in the book of Daniel. Here, Daniel gives us the longest time prophecy in the entire Bible. And what an exciting prophecy we are about to study. Why don't we get started? So let's get started. Our first heading is the panorama of empires. In order to understand Daniel's prophecies, it's necessary to employ correct principles of interpretation. One of these is the principle of repetition and expansion. This prophetic guidance and guidelines suggest that each of the great outline prophecies in the book of Daniel continually goes over the same history, repeating the empires of the past. But each succeeding prophecy adds further details on the end time. I'd like to direct your attention now to the screen. Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 go through the same sequence as Daniel two and Daniel seven. And they're portraying the empires of Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the little horn power. The focal point in Daniel seven was the development of the little horn. Whereas the focal point in Daniel eight and in Daniel chapter nine is how God will bring an end to the little horn power. Friends, tonight I have five theme questions for you and we're firstly going to look at question number one. How long would it take for the sanctuary to be cleansed? In Bible prophecy, a day can also represent what? Number three, how much time was given to the Jews to follow God's plan? Number four, why was the 69 weeks broken up into 62 and seven? And finally, what is the point What's the whole point behind tonight's lesson of the 2300 days? Because there's a lot of detail there. So, friends, tonight we're going back in time to Babylon. We've been in Medo-Persia, and now we're heading back in time to the city of Babylon. So here we are, Daniel's longest time prophecy, very, very exciting, and sharing together lesson number 13. Would you join me for question number one? When did Daniel have the vision of Daniel 8? We go to Daniel 8, 1 and 2. It was in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. A vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. You'll notice that Daniel's very clear here in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1 that the vision is his. It's not King Belshazzar's vision. When did Daniel have the vision of Daniel 8? It was the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. I'm now going to have a look at Daniel chapter 8 and verse 2. Daniel said, I saw in the vision and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Friends, why don't you have a look on the screen, so where is Elam? Well, you can see there in the green Babylonia on this little sketch map, you can see the orange uh, nation of Elam, you can see there's Susa, and then on the right you can see the uh, city of Babylon between the Euphrates and Tigris River. On the right you can see Shushan, the great city, and then the river Ulai. But where is it all today? We'll have a look in the middle, of the screen, and you'll see there that that town where the tomb of Daniel is, the resting place of a biblical prophet, with the red marker on Google Maps, is actually known today as Shush, which is an abbreviation, isn't of Shushan. It's also called Susa, and so it's in the great country today of Iran. See there on the right, the great nation of Iran. On the left-hand side, we have its neighbor, Iraq, and you can see there the city of Baghdad. So it's good to know where these ancient cities were. Well, where was the Ulai River? It said uh, that the scholars believe that the Eastern Kake River might be actually the Ulai River. Now, we don't know if it's the Ulai River, the Ulai River, or the Ulai River. But um, the main thing is that we know that Daniel was by the river. This vision was given near the end of the Babylonian realm. Interestingly, we will see that it did not begin with Babylon, but with Medo-Persia. You need to remember that that question might be in the quiz. How's that for a hint? All right, so Daniel chapter 8 starts with the Medo-Persian empire. What sort of dating are we looking at here? Well, under King Belshazzar, He reigned in Babylon from 550 to 539 BC. Then Daniel 8 follows on uh, after that from 548 to 547 BC. But notice the difference in time to Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is 539 BC and there are nine years between Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. I want you to be aware of that because that's where we're going to be tonight, Daniel 8 and 9. We're in question two, what kind of animal did Daniel see and vision that conquered in every direction? We're going to Daniel 8 verses 3 and 4. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, and the ram had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Friends, remember, with all prophecies, the fine detail is absolutely essential. Let's have a look at verse 4. Daniel writes in Daniel 8, 4, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will, and he became great so the animal daniel saw in the vision in fact the first of two animals was actually a ram with two horns question three clears up the identity of who this is so we ask the question who did the ram represent and we go to daniel 8 and verse 20. before we go there just just Remind yourself that in repetition and expansion prophecy, we're going to go over some old ground and add some new details. So in Daniel 7 5, we have the bear that's raised up on one side. The side that's raised up represents the Persians who took over from the Medes. It was a dual empire. What does Daniel chapter 8 and verse 20 say? And here is the answer The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of. Media and Persia. So as we look there at the ram on the right hand side, we have one of the horns, that is the kingdom of Media, and then the other horn, the larger one came up later, and that stands for the kingdom of Persia. This is an exact replica of the same format that we had in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 5. So who did the ram represent? Very simply, the kings of Media and Persia. Friends, we don't have to guess this because the angel Gabriel tells Daniel this in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 16. Friends, if we can only remember, the Bible explains itself and the New Testament is um, pretty much just based on Old Testament scriptures, especially the book of Revelation is a mosaic pretty much of the Old Testament scriptures. Question four, what was the next animal that Daniel saw in this vision in Daniel 8 and verse 5? And I was considering suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Friends, if the uh, winged lion of Babylon was fast and the four-headed flying leopard was uh, turbocharged, this hairy goat that doesn't even touch the ground. He must be like a Formula One racing car. In fact, one uh, young man told me that uh, in my last seminar, and he said, wow, he said that goat must have gone fast. He didn't even touch the ground. He was just like a Formula One racing car. And so a male goat came from the West. This goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And we're going to find out what that is in question five. So who did the rough goat represent and what did the great horn symbolise in Daniel 8.21? The angel tells Daniel. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. So the goat's Greece, the the horn must be the first king and we can see now the kingdoms of Media um, and Persia and then followed by the kingdom of Greece. So have a look on the screen. Notice how the prophecy followed the same sequence as Daniel two and Daniel seven. After Medo-Persia comes Greece. The notable horn represents the first king of Greece, which is Alexander the Great. I'd like to direct your attention now to the screen. So friends, we have in Medo-Persia, you can see there Babylon at the top, we have the metal man, the gold, silver, bronze, and iron, we have the metal man, so then we have following those medals, Babylon, Medo-Persia and Greece. We're looking at the relationship between Medo-Persia and Greece. So Medo-Persia in Daniel 8 is represented by the ram and Greece is represented by the hairy goat, that male goat, that billy goat, as some of the Bible versions say. And these two are about to get into a confrontation. I wanna ask you a question, did God choose the right animal to represent Medo-Persia? What do you think? Before we go there, what animal actually represents Australia? Do you know what's on the crest and the seal? Well, some of you would know there's a kangaroo and an emu, and you should be grateful for that, that it's not a hairy-nosed wombat. But friends, God is very, very specific in the way that he uses symbols. In this vision, Persia is symbolically represented as a ram with two horns, one of which stands for media and the other higher one for Persia. In Daniel eight three, it says, as I read before, the higher horn came up last. Reproduced here is a ram's head made of gold from the Persian period. Persian art frequently employed the ram, even on such purely functional objects as jar, handles. Friends, here's the ram cord in the thicket that I took these photos in the British Museum. Absolutely incredible. So we need to remember that the ram was a well-known ancient symbolic animal. Would you join me in question six at the top of page three? What did the male goat do to the ram? So for any children watching, we uh, have a parental uh, advisory bulletin, uh, parental guidance necessary. There might be some depiction of violence here. Daniel 8 and verses 6 and 7. Then he, the male goat, came to the ram that had the two horns. Daniel writes, which I'd seen standing beside the river, the river Uli, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him. He attacked the ram and broke his two horns. Verse 7, there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Friends, I'd love to get into more detail here. I'd like to talk about the battle between the Greeks and the Persians, but I'm going to resist that because some of this will be covered in uh, two lessons time in lesson 15. So what did the male goat do to the ram? Very simply, he smashed him, he destroyed him, he totally conquered him. Question seven, what happened to the great horn when it was strong and what came up in its place in Daniel 8.8? So notice there, there is the male goat, the billy goat, the he-goat, the hairy goat. Notice the horn has been broken, it's snapped off. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. There's our answer. So friends, who is this large horn in Daniel 8.8? The large horn, of course, was broken, and that represents when Alexander the Great died. Let's continue on in the last half of verse 8. It says, And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And so there's our answer. What happened to the great horn when it was strong? The great horn was broken. It represented Alexander. And what came up in its place? In place of it, four notable ones, in other words, four horns, came up to take its place. Question eight, what was the meaning of the four horns that came up in Daniel 8.22? As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So this is talking about the delineation after the death of Alexander follows four rulers. What was the meaning of the four horns that came up? The four horns are four kings or kingdoms. The note says Alexander the Great conquered the world in a very short period of time. But at the age of 32, he died suddenly, the result of his own intemperance. I'm gonna stop there. You know, most commentators say that Alexander died from uh, acute alcoholic poisoning. But in recent times, uh, researchers uh, in a documentary I saw with medical people were suggesting that perhaps Alexander the Great was poisoned by his generals. They were sick and tired of never getting back to Greece to their families. And so it was suggested that they took the opportunity to slowly poison Alexander. And then when he died, they were able to go home. Alexander always was looking for one more battle, one more country to conquer. Going back to the note under question eight, the Grecian empire, instead of being taken over by one person, was divided into four separate kingdoms. The kingdoms of? Egypt, Thrace, Macedonia, and Syria. So there's the four. They represent the four horns. These four kingdoms were ruled by the four generals of Alexander. So Ptolemy was Egypt and Palestine, Lysimachus, Thrace, and Asia Minor. Cassander was Macedonia and Greece, and Seleucus was Babylon and Assyria. So friends, we've seen the busts of the generals. Here's a bust of Alexander, the great Greek general. And uh, this is an amazing uh, statue in Thessaloniki in Greece. It's Alexander's statue. Um, I believe that when a horse is raised up like that, it shows that the, uh, the warrior actually died in battle. And that was not the case with Alexander, but maybe this was done as a tribute to his bravery because Alexander is an absolute legend in Europe especially in the countries that he conquered, they think of him very fondly. Question nine, what did Daniel see coming out of one of the four winds of heaven? In Daniel 8 and verse nine, and out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, I had 10 slides where I explained the difference between the winds and the horns, but in order to keep the program, to uh, a good time tonight I'm going to skip over that there's arguments for winds there's arguments for horns um, and both those arguments could be made I think I I, I lean more to the four winds uh, than the other one but friends at the end of the day um, yeah we can't handle that tonight what did Daniel see coming out of one of the four winds of heaven he saw a little horn question 10 what who did the little horn stand up against in Daniel eight twenty three to twenty five? And in the latter time of their kingdom in Daniel eight twenty three, Daniel writes When the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people." Friends, the little horn power and the Church of Rome during the Dark Ages, very much this applies to them. In uh, the first part of verse 24, his power shall be mighty but not by his own power. And so the Church of Rome used Germany and France and other nations of Europe to uh, persecute God's saints. This power would destroy fearfully, Lots of people died. It should prosper and thrive. He will destroy the mighty and also turned his wrath against the holy people. Daniel eight twenty five. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his well, rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. So, friends, here we can see we've got evil on the throne, while truth is on the scaffold. Scaffold is an old English word which means the place of execution. And uh, in terms of that, what do I mean evil's on the throne while truth is on the cross? Well, in Daniel 8, 25, part B, we're about to find that that actually happened. The little horn power shall even rise against thee, prince of princes. There's our answer. But he shall be broken without human means. In other words, the kingdom of heaven would act unilaterally against the little horn power. Who did the little horn power stand up against? Amazingly, he would rise against the kingdom of heaven and try and destroy the prince of princes. The prince of princes is obviously a reference to Jesus Christ. The power he described as the little horn stood up in opposition to Christ Jesus himself. The power that crucified Christ was the pagan Roman Empire, the next empire in the sequence of empires foretold in the book of Daniel. At this point, the little horn in Daniel 8 and verse 9 was none other than the pagan Roman Empire. And as you can see on the screen, papal Rome came out of pagan Rome. The little horn power came out of the fourth beast, and that was the power of of the empire of Rome. Question 11, we're near the bottom of page three. Did the little horn stay a little horn? Well, no, it didn't. So what happened? We go to Daniel 8 and verse 10. And it, the little horn power, grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Friends, I'm not gonna get into that interpretation because we'll get into that more in uh, session 15. I'm tempted to, but you just need to remember this tonight as we hurry on to the rest of the prophecy. If the ram became great, and then the goat grew very great, and then the little horn grew exceedingly great, you can see that this is absolutely incredible. So did the little horn stay little horn? No way, it grew up. And the King James says it became exceedingly great. Have a look on the screen. The little horn is the major focus of the vision. It is exceedingly great compared to the power of Medo-Persia and the power of the kingdom of Greece. And it represents Rome in both its pagan and its papal phase. In question 12, we note here, as the little horn grew up, what five things did it do? Now, because we're going to cover this in session 15, I'm going to hurry through it very, very quickly and spend more time on it next time. Tonight, we have a huge lesson. The uh, author of the lessons has uh, combined Daniel 8 with Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is a massive chapter on its own. And so we are going to go like the hairy goat so fast our feet will not even touch the ground. Let's go. Question 12, part A. As the little horn grew up, what five things did it do? It says he even something himself as high as the prince of the host. In Daniel eight eleven, 11, part 1, he even exalted himself as high as the Prince of the Host. I'm going to stop there. What did he do? He even exalted himself as high as the Prince of the Host. This actually refers in two ways. Firstly, to the death of Jesus on the cross by the pagan Roman Empire, and later to what the Church of Rome would do, the the papal church would do in terms of what it would do to the sanctuary and the ministry of Christ in heaven. We're going to speak about that in a moment. The second of the five things it would do, part B, by him, the something sacrifices were taken away. Daniel 11, part B, and by him, the little horn power, the daily sacrifices were taken away. I've underlined the word sacrifices. Every time you see a, uh, a word in italics when we're quoting scripture, Uh, I haven't done that. The italics always represent a word the translators have added in to make it easier to read. And so by the little horn the daily sacrifices were taken away. That's our answer. Friends, let me explain this. The daily sacrifices, what is that? The original word for daily sacrifices here is tamud. Just one word. As I explained already, the sacrifice word is not even in the original text. Tamud is used in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers for not only the daily sacrifices, but for all the main ongoing continual and perpetual ministry of the priests in the earthly sanctuary. Then in heaven, the daily or continual Uninterrupted ministry of the Old Testament priesthood in the earthly sanctuary represents the continual, ongoing, ever available ministry of Christ up in the heavenly sanctuary. All right, in part C, the third thing the little horn power would do, the place of his sanctuary was cast something. And we read there, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. What does this actually mean? Look, I can't resist the temptation. I have to maybe just share a little bit on this. How did the little horn power cast down the place of God's sanctuary. Well, friends, the little horn power stretched his horn all the way up to the kingdom of heaven. And there Jesus is doing his ministry for us today. Have a look in Hebrews eight, Hebrews nine and Hebrews 10, his ministry of highest priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. But the little horn has a counterfeit ministry where all eyes today look to an earthly pontiff and an earthly priest. And so the ministry of Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, most Christians don't even know anything about it. They've never even heard there was a sanctuary in heaven. They don't even know that we know that the Bible says where Jesus is right now and what he's doing. Some of them think he's MIA, he's missing in action. Or he's nodded off friends this is incredible this little horn power cast the true place of jesus christ sanctuary in heaven he cast it down because nobody's looking up there nobody knows what's going on up there because they're focusing on an earthly priesthood and an earthly sanctuary the fourth thing the little horn power would do verse 12 of daniel 8 because of transgression an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. What did he do? He cast God's truth down to the ground. And then the fifth thing he did, he did all this and it says at the end of the verse, he did all this and he prospered. He prospered. Friends, the King James My favourite version says, and it uses alliteration for those of you love English, he practised and he prospered. It's got a bit of a ring to it. The little horn, he practised and he prospered. And there is our answer. Just have a look at the screen. How involved was the uh, pagan Rome? in uh, the early Christian church. Friends, do you remember a Roman official tried to kill the baby Jesus? Do you remember a Roman governor condemned Jesus Christ to die? That was Pontius Pilate. Do you remember that Roman soldiers crucified Jesus Christ? Do you remember that Roman soldiers, a Roman guard, a centurion, they sealed with an emblem, Jesus' tomb, the garden tomb. And fifthly, that a Roman guard watched his tomb. So friends, you can see that Rome in its pagan and its papal form had a lot to do with doing harm to the work of God in the kingdom of heaven. I'm at the top of page four in the note. Obviously, we are not just dealing with pagan Roman Empire, but in the later days of the Roman Empire, the little horn changed form. It became a religious political power that cast down the truth of God to the ground. It practiced and prospered and destroyed the truth of God's sanctuary. Let me share with you the note on the screen, the quote, it's not in the lesson. This is from La bianca professor of history in the University of Rome. Quote, to the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff, end of quote. Friends, you know pontiff is another title for the Pope, but the name pontiff actually comes from the pagan Roman uh, governors, the Caesars. And so when Constantine fled Rome because of the barbaric tribes, he went across to Istanbul and called it Constantinople. Today it's the head of uh, the great country of Turkey. Then, friends, he doesn't hand over to another Roman emperor. He actually hands over the throne to the Bishop of Rome, who we would know today as the Pope. I go back to the note. In in following the sequence of Daniel 7, the next power after pagan Rome is papal Rome. Daniel 8 uses the same symbol to represent both powers, indicating the connection between pagan Rome and papal Rome. Likewise, Daniel 7 indicated that the little horn grew out of the dragon. Thus, the little horn in Daniel 8 represents Rome in its two stages of pagan and papal. And so, friends, have a look on the screen. How long did these two powers last? Well, pagan Rome lasted for 644 years, from 168 BC to 476 AD. That's a long time. But papal Rome would dwarf that amount would uh, nearly double that time. Papal Rome from 538, she reigned under the Bishop of Rome Rome in in the city of Rome in Italy, right through to 1798 when the Pope was taken captive by uh, Napoleon's general Berthier in 1798. That's a period unequaled on earth by any other power, 1260 years. Let me share with you this note that's not in the lesson. The single horn symbol shows that the two phases of Rome, imperial and papal, were, in reality, one ongoing power. This was brought about through the popes taking the place of the Caesars and seeking to set up a holy Roman Empire. Constantine also made the empire a Christian empire, and succeeding Roman emperors in the East sought to establish a Catholic Christianity overall. Note that in the image of Daniel 2, the iron represented Rome, and it still existed, broken and divided in the feet of iron and clay. Also the little horn of Daniel 7 was a Roman horn, and it came out of the fourth beast. So friends to summarize, because we are about to go into a new theme. The 2,300 years are not explained in Daniel 8, where we've looked at the kingdom of Medo-Persia, the ram. We've looked at the kingdom of Greece, which is the male goat, and the four divisions, the four generals. We've now looked at Rome in its Pagal and Pable uh, stages and phases in the little horn power that extends his power up to heaven and affects even the prince of princes. But now we go into a new phase. We're going to look at an amazing time prophecy, the 2300-year time period, which was sealed up until the time of the end. And so we're changing gears here right in the middle of Daniel chapter 8, and we go to question 13. As Daniel contemplated all that he'd seen in this vision, what question was asked? We go to Daniel 8, 13, where Daniel in vision here two beings, maybe two angels speaking in heaven. Daniel writes, then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be? There's our answer. So these beings in heaven are concerned. How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot by the little horn power? As Daniel contemplated all he'd seen in this vision, what question was asked up in heaven? The beings were worried about how long the vision would last. As Daniel had seen in the sequence of empires Medo Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, the papal apostasy and all the terrible deeds committed by these powers, the question was asked how long shall be this vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the transgression of desolation, etc., etc. In other words, Daniel heard two holy beings in heaven talking, and one asked the question, How long will this vision be that begins with Medo Persia and ends with pagan Rome? All heaven is concerned about the work of the little horn power and the destruction it is doing on earth to the kingdom of God. And so here we go to question fourteen and Daniel eight fourteen, where the answer comes. And we're going to get the Bible's longest time prophecy in this particular verse. How long would it take for the sanctuary to actually be cleansed or restored? And Gabriel, the angel said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. The Hebrew word is nitstak. It not only means cleansed, but it means restored to its rightful state. So how long would it take for the sanctuary to be restored to its rightful state after the damage from the little horn power? It would take 2,300 days. Now friends, some people think that 2,300 days are just literal days or 6.3 years or 76 months. But friends, this does not account and be, it can't cover. The events of the prophecy and all the historical facts. And so we believe, and we will show you now from Scripture how the 2,300 days actually represent 2,300 years. I'm going to read the note under question 14. The 2,300 literal days is a little less than seven years. It's not a very long time for all the events described in Daniel 8 to take place. According to Daniel 8, the 2300 days would encompass the Medo-Persian, Grecian, Roman and papal powers. Obviously, we are not dealing with 2300 literal days, but 2300 literal years. And in the 2300, this 1260 year time prophecy for the little horn power, that would be a part of that prophecy and would be taking place at the same time. Question 15, does the Bible support the use of a day for a year in prophecy? And we have to ask this question because the events are so huge in magnitude, they can't fit into six and a bit years or 76 months. We go to Ezekiel 4, 6. And so God says to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 4:6, I have laid on you a day for each year. So friends, in Bible prophecy, The Bible does support the use of a day for a year in Bible prophecy. God said, I've laid on you a day for each year. In Bible time prophecy, the note says, one day is symbolic of one year. This principle fits in very clearly with the context of Daniel 8. Now, you might like another text on this, because no truth stands or falls on one particular text alone. We need a multitude of witnesses. The Bible says, in the Old Testament, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every truth be established. Would you write this down on your lesson guide? I don't think it's covered right in there. Numbers 14 and verse 34. Numbers 14 34, speaking about the spies, they went and spied out the land for 40 days. And there God said, Look, because of your sins, for every day you spied out the land, 40 days will become 40 years, each day for a what? each day would stand for a year. So friends, here the 2300 days which are evenings and mornings actually stand for 2300 literal years. This is a huge period of time. We go to question 16, what was Daniel told about the vision of the evening and the mornings? In Daniel 8 26, The angel says to Daniel, the vision of the evenings and mornings, this is the 2300-day year prophecy, which was told is true. Isn't that interesting? God tells us this prophecy is true. It's accurate. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to 6.3 years or 76 months. Is that what I said? No, I corrupt the scripture. I rebuke myself therefore seal up the vision for it refers to what many days in the future isn't that interesting god gives us the answer what was daniel told about the vision of the evenings and the mornings he was told to seal up the vision friends you don't seal or shut up a vision if it's about to fall due within seven years no way it's just not possible in all other aspects aspects of this vision were clearly interpreted for Daniel in the latter part of the chapter. When we come to the verse where the interpretation should be given for the evenings and mornings of the 2300 days, we are told that it shut up for it shall be for many days. Let's have actually have a look at those words in Daniel 8 and verse 17. And this illustration represents Daniel on his knees, kneeling before the angel, and the angel was dressed as a man there. So he the angel came near where I stood and then when he came I was afraid and I fell upon my face but he said to me understand son of man that the vision refers to the time of the end. There it is again friends this vision would be for the time of the end. Question 7a why didn't God give Daniel an interpretation of the 2300 days at this time? Yeah well why wouldn't that follow on exactly? Because Daniel would have wanted to know. We're going to Daniel 8, 27 at the end of the chapter. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. There's no answer. And afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but none or no one understood it. The answer is that Daniel could not received the rest of the vision because he was so sick. He was so worried about what he'd heard. As Daniel saw everything that was done by the little horn power, he fainted and was sick. Therefore, God could not give him the interpretation of the 2300-day prophecy. Daniel 8 concludes by stating that nobody understood the vision. Everyone clearly understood the first part of the vision. It was clearly interpreted in the latter part of chapter 8 the only part of the vision, not explain. Question 18, what is Daniel doing when chapter 9 opens? So we're switching now from Daniel chapter 8 to Daniel chapter 9. We're going from Daniel chapter 8 to Daniel chapter 9, 1 to 3. So friends, we are going from the Babylonian time back to the Medo-Persian time. It's now the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans." So friends, look, we're moving from Babylon down to Medo-Persia. Remember, we are going from uh, Daniel 8, 548 BC, down to 539 BC. There is a nine-year gap between Daniel 8 and 9. Friends, Daniel was desperate to know the answer to this prophecy. And you and I both know that God answers prayers. What are three ways God answers prayers? He answers prayers, one, with yes, two, with no, and then the third answer is the one that I really struggle with. What's the third one? I heard one someone once describe it as being put in God's waiting room. Oh, wow, that's really tough, isn't it? When God puts you in the waiting room. I want to ask you tonight, are you in God's waiting room? Have you asked God for some request? Have you asked God for some blessing for some way forward and you haven't been able to get there? Friends, I wanna tell you that if you're getting discouraged or you're getting bitter or you're getting angry with God, God allowed Daniel a little time in the waiting room. Have a look on the screen. How many years was he in the waiting room? Lord have mercy, Daniel was in God's waiting room for nine years. Wow, I just wanted you to think about that. We're in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 2. In the first year of his reign, that's uh, the king of Medo-Persia, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he, God would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, this isn't in the lesson. So if you want to write an extra text in to your margin here, uh, next to question 18, write in Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12. Let's go there. We're in Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12. And this whole land, Jeremiah writes, shall be a desolation and an astonishment. What land? This is the land of Israel, God's land and these nations, that's the children of Judah and Israel, shall serve the king of Babylon. How long? They were going to have to stay in Babylon for two generations. The answer is 70 years. Let's go to Jeremiah 25 and verse 12. Then it will come to pass when the 70 years are completed, and that would be 539 BC, that I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make their land their city a perpetual desolation are you aware that ancient babylon remember i took you there in lesson seven in session seven i gave you a tour of babylon do you remember that that city is absolutely desolate the ruins are there it hasn't been rebuilt friends here are the medes and persians charging through the gates into babylon and this happened at the end of the 70 years so daniel is trying to work out is he going to be stuck and his people stuck in babylon for how long 2,300 years, he's getting really, really worried. No wonder he was sick and fainted. And so he goes to the books and studies and finds out that Jeremiah said it's going to be a 70 year captivity. Daniel 9, verse 3 Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, with sackcloth and ashes. There's our answer. So, what's Daniel doing when chapter 9 opens? He's making a request. By prayer and supplications. What's supplications? It's the old English word for requests, for pleading, for begging. Friends, you know what I learned when I wrote the word prayer in here? God has reminded me that prayer is always the answer. Even if you put in the waiting room, prayer is always the answer. And sometimes it's better to be in the waiting room than to get a no. How's that for a positive thought? Let me share with you the note. Have a look on the screen. Daniel 9 opens with Daniel studying Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years of captivity, hoping perhaps to find a clue to the interpretation of the 2300 days. Daniel 9 finds Daniel praying to his God for understanding of that which he did not comprehend. So Daniel 9. 4-19 records Daniel's earnest prayer for the understanding, and he confesses his sins and the sins of his people, hoping that somehow God would see fit to give him the correct interpretation. Friends, I'm going to add in Daniel 9, 7-19, if you want to write that in, Daniel 9, 7-19. Some people say the God of the Old Testament is a God of works or a God of law, and he's not a God of grace. Get a load of this. Daniel believed that the God of the Old Testament was a God of grace. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your what? Your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Friends, I wanted to read that passage there of Daniel's prayer because in a moment we're going to be calculating how long it took for the angel to come from heaven to earth. Let's go to question 19. Who appeared to Daniel in answer to his prayer in Daniel 9, 20 and 21? And while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel. Now, some people think this is a girl's name. This is a man's name. Daniel calls the angel the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning. This is the beginning of the prophecy uh, given in Daniel 8 and verse 14. So while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning in the previous chapter, nine years earlier, being caused to fly swiftly, he reached me about the time of the evening offering. That means the evening sacrifice. The King James says the evening sacrifice. We know the morning sacrifice in the temple was 9 a.m. We know the evening sacrifice, mid-afternoon was the uh, late afternoon or evening sacrifice or offering. So who appeared to Daniel and answered his prayer? God sent that powerful angel Gabriel, the man Gabriel whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning. Friends, I want to ask you, do you think that Gabriel flew down in three or four minutes? About the time it takes to read Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, let's say if you're a slow reader, five minutes, did Gabriel flap his wings all the way down? I don't think so. God knows... Something about time travel, doesn't he? And when we get up there, I'm going to be the first one to ask some questions about how that happens. The same angel who gave Daniel the original vision of chapter 8 now comes and appears to him again. Please remember there has been no new vision since the vision of the 2300 days. There's been no new vision. Question 20, what was the purpose of Gabriel's visit this time? Daniel 9, 22, 23. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Friends, do you realize the word understand is used more than 20 times in the book of Daniel? It's absolutely a key word. Let's go to verse 23. The beginning of your supplications or requests, the command went out, and I, Gabriel the angel, have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. I'm just gonna pause here a moment to just remind you guys that even if you're in God's waiting room or you feel that God hasn't answered your prayers, you need to know that what Gabriel said to Daniel was true for you, that heaven knows your name, the hairs on your head are numbered, Jesus said in the New Testament, and you are greatly beloved. Why are you greatly beloved? You might not be living the life that god would approve but you know what god loves you anyway he absolutely loves you why does he love you because you are the sons and daughters of god whether you realize it or not how great is our god what was the purpose of gabriel's visit this time he said i've now come forth daniel to give you skill to understand this vision consider the matter and now understand the vision i'm going to help you understand it. Gabriel called Daniel's attention to the vision that he saw at the beginning of the 2300 day vision. Gabriel said he now was come to give Daniel an understanding of that vision and told him to consider the vision and understand it. We can then expect an interpretation of the 2300 days in the next few verses. We're at the bottom of page five in our lesson guide. If you've joined us, you don't need the lesson guide to enjoy this lesson or follow along. So thank you so much for being with us. Our second heading in this session is entitled The 70 Weeks. We're right into the 2300-year day prophecy right here in Daniel 9. Question 21, how much time of the 2300 days or years was determined? I've added in there to the question or cut off for the Jewish people. We're going to Daniel 9 and verse 24. Gabriel says to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined. They're determined, they're set, they're cut off. For your people, that's the Jews, and for your holy city, Daniel, that's Jerusalem, to finish the transgression. The Jews were given 490 years to shape up or ship out and then God was going to make a decision whether they would stay, his special people, to take the gospel to the world. Now, after that time would be finished, Jesus Christ would come in just at the end of that time period, and he would do the following. He would make an end of sins, because no man could do that through his blood on Calvary. He would make reconciliation for our iniquity. He would reconcile us back to God. He would bring in everlasting righteousness praise God for that he would seal up the vision he would fulfill the vision and he would fulfill this prophecy because he would arrive on time and he would die on time and then he would go to heaven and anoint the most holy friends I want to tell you I'd love to get into this there's about seven sermons on the page there the good news is tonight we don't have time for it how much time of the 2300 days was determined or cut off for the Jewish people the answer very simply was given by the angel. It was 70 weeks. The answer is 70 weeks. Daniel was told to consider the vision of the 2300 days. He was next told that the 70 weeks were determined or cut off from the 2300 days for the Jewish people. I want to stop there. Please have a look on the screen. The word determined, as I told you, means to cut off. It actually means to amputate as well. And Daniel's people there, as I explained, were the Jewish nation, the Jewish people held captive in Babylon for 70 years or two generations. Now have a look on the screen. Friends, this prophecy of the 2300 has, and we've got the scissors there, the 490 years for God's Jewish people to be cut off from the 2300 years. What do we mean by that? Well, the original Hebrew word for determined is kathak. Sounds like a Klingon word, doesn't it? Kathak. In many cases, it means severed from or cut off. In fact, its literal meaning is chop-chop, or it means divided. Let me go back to the note at the bottom of page five. 70 weeks times seven days in a week equals what? 490 days or 490 years. Remember, God's people were in captivity in babylon at this time god was assuring them that he would give them another opportunity he would give them another 490 years to come into line and he was going to rescue them and bring them home from their captivity in babylon Well, question 22 asks, when were the 70-week and 2,300-day prophecies to begin? Friends, it's very, very important that we get the right starting date. If the scholars were here tonight, the theologians were uh, lecturing you tonight, they'd say you must have a right protology to end up with a correct eschatology. What does that mean? Well, let me (laughs) make it very simple. If you have the wrong starting date, you'll have the wrong finishing date for the 2300 day prophecy. So let's go to Daniel 9.25 and try and work out the starting date for the 2300 and the 490. Know therefore and understand, Gabriel tells Daniel, that you're looking for a decree that's from the going forth of a command to restore and to build Jerusalem. That's what we've got to look for. Then later on, Messiah the Prince turns up, or the Prince appears and is anointed as the Messiah, and then there shall be a further seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's interesting, isn't it? When were the 70-week and 2300-day prophecies to begin? From the going forth of the command, the King James says, the commandment, if you're using King James, the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. So friends, the note says the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem was given by Artaxerxes in 457 BC. Now, I'm going to ask you to pause there. We are not going to go into question 23 because I found when I'm doing Bible studies, people say to me, David, how can you prove 457 is the correct date? And that is a very, very important question i'm going to answer that for you tonight you got your pen ready now if you're going to write down these texts you can write them halfway down the page next to that illustration of those weeks and years or you can write it up the top but the first text i'm going to take you to in a moment is ezra chapter seven and my question before we get there is how do we know when to start the counting we need the right starting date to get the right finishing date So we're asking, when do these 2,300 years begin and end? I'm in Ezra 7 and verse 14. Write down Ezra 7 and verse 14. So the elders of the Jews built, because they'd gone back to Jerusalem, they'd been allowed to go back, and they prospered through the prophesying of two prophets. There was Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, the son of Edo. And the Jews built the city, they finished the walls, They finished the temple according to the commandment of the God of Israel. So God was in charge of sending them from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And it was also done through God's mighty power through and according to the commandment or the commands of three uh, kings of Persia. First one was Cyrus, second one was Darius, and the third one was Artaxerxes. So when do these 2300 years begin and end? Well, I'm going to go through this again, and I'm going to add some dates in there. I'm going to give you four dates and then ask you to choose one. So we're looking for the starting date of the 2300 year prophecy. The lesson said it was 457 BC, but we're asking, well, how do we know that? Ezra 614, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus. Cyrus's decree is 536 BC. You might even like to write that into your Bible, but certainly write it in your lesson guide. Cyrus said to the Jews, go home. What do you think happened? Well, let's find out the next part. Then there was a command of Darius in 519 BC. He said to the Jews, you can go home. You can return to Jerusalem. And then the third decree was Artaxerxes, king of Persia in 457 BC. And then I was able to find a fourth date where Artaxerxes, king of Persia and Nehemiah 2 said, You guys should go home, ET, go home. So friends, of the four dates, which one are we going to choose? Why would we choose one date over the other? So friends, our lesson guide has told us the date is 457 BC, but we wanna know why we would choose the third decree of Artaxerxes, King of Persia. And I'm gonna show you right now. So the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and to restore Jerusalem was given in the year 457 B.C., but three other dates were given. Friends, the question I want to ask tonight is, why didn't the Jews go home? Why didn't they go home? Do you want to think about that? Do you think they were comfortable in Babylon? It was a pagan city. There were idols to worship. There was degrading rites. There was vice. There was fornication, there was lewdness, there was sexual immorality. Do you think the people of God were comfortable in Babylon? I've got a question for you. Are God's people comfortable in the cities of Babylon around the world today? Why will they not move out to the country? And why will they not look for a lifestyle when when you go outside, you see the trees, you see the water, You see the plants growing and you see the hand of God. Friends, God is calling his people right now. Right now, he's calling them out of Babylon, wherever Babylon may be. Well, I'm going to show you why we would choose one of those four dates. I'm in Ezra 7, and if you're writing the scripture down, would you write down verses 11 to 13? We're in Ezra 7, just add verses 11 to 13. Ezra writes, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, that's himself, the scribe. He was an expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Now he's quoting the king. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth i issue a decree that all those of the people of israel and the priests and levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to jerusalem may go with you friends Artaxerxes he said the jews may go home did this just happen no ezra had been praying and praying and praying about this we're asking when did the 2300 years begin in ezra 7 7 write this down ezra 7 7 Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Wow, there's a date. When was the seventh year of King Artaxerxes? King Artaxerxes of Persia began to reign in the year 464 BC. But remember when we go from a. um, B.C. date to an A.D. date, we actually go backwards. So let's take the seventh year of Artaxerxes reign from the year 464 B.C. when he began to reign. And would you believe that takes us to the year 457 B.C.? So that's the date of this decree that's been given that we're reading was 457 B.C. Absolutely incontrovertible. Now, we have a question to ask. Why would we choose 457 BC over all the other dates? I have the answer right here in Daniel 9.25. Gabriel says to Daniel, now therefore, sorry, he says, know therefore and understand Daniel that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem. Friends, we're looking for two things. What are we looking for? A command or a commandment by the king to restore and to build Jerusalem, friends, That was never applied to the decrees of Cyrus or a Darius or Artaxerxes 444. In fact, it was only applied to Artaxerxes decree in 457 BC. Let me prove that to you. Would you like to write down Ezra 7, 25 to 27? And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as, as know the laws of your God. Who's saying this? This is King Artaxerxes giving this commandment to Ezra. And teach those who do not know them. So he's saying to Ezra, when you go back to Israel with your people, You need to teach your people the laws of God. You are allowed to set up magistrates and judges. We're in Ezra 7 and verse 25, giving extra material not found in the lesson. Then in verse 26, the king says, whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Friends, those two verses tell us that Israel is restored as a nation. The king is letting them go back. He's letting them run themselves. They're autonomous. Auto means self and nomos means law. They're self-ruling. They have been restored as a nation. Well, does Ezra understand what this is? In verse 27, he absolutely does. He's in shock. Uh, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Friends, read Ezra 7 yourself. Artaxerxes tells his treasurers to pay the Jews, not only to go home and rebuild the walls, but to to rebuild the sanctuary. This is an absolute miracle, friends. We have a decree that tells Jerusalem and the Jews that they are to be restored as a nation and they are to rebuild. There we have it. Friends, four sources verify 457 BC. The Olympia dates are traced through the reigning kings back through the Olympics. 457 verified by Ptolemy's Canon, a record of eclipses that goes back as far as 747 BC. A third source to verify 457 BC, that it's an accurate date, there's the Elephantine Papyrus in Aswan, Egypt, and I've been there. They've discovered double-dated documents which cross-reference the Persian Babylonian lunar calendar with the Egyptian solar calendar finally the babylonian cuneiform tablets these list the dates of kings who ruled in the area from 626 bc to 75 a.d now i have another quote which um yeah is is nobody to do with us in uh, frank gabalin's book the expositor's biblical commentary page 26 he writes this the figure 70 that's the 490 you know 77's 490 And he says, the figure 70 corresponds to the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. The above mentioned decree was probably that of Artaxerxes I in 457 BC, issued to Ezra in connection with his return to Palestine. So that commentary says it's Artaxerxes I decree in 457 BC. Then we have the big gun, Sir Isaac Newton, in his book, Observations on the Prophecies of Daniel, 154 to 157, quote, the years of Artaxerxes reign are among the most easily established dates in history. The Canon of Ptolemy, with its list of kings and astronomical observations, the Greek Olympiads and allusions in Greek history to Persian affairs, all combine to place the seventh year of Artaxerxes at 457 BC, beyond successful Controversion. If you don't know what controversial means, it means contradiction. So there we have the date 457. Why are we going on about the date, friends? If you have the wrong starting date, you have the wrong finishing date. And a lot of people say that Jesus was crucified in the year AD 33. At that point, you're in a discussion with other Christians about what the right date is. And if you claim AD 31, you have to be able to prove that. And most people can't. They just say, "Oh well, that's the date I've always been told." Well, let's prove it. So, friends, there's our 2,300 days, our 2,300 years. It starts in 457 BC with a command to restore and build Jerusalem, and goes to AD 1844. Now, have a look on the screen. There's a little problem here. Some of our biblical mathematicians and some of our students have said, "If you get 457 BC and you add 2,300 years to it, you will come up with AD." 1843. When the prophecy says on the chart in the lesson guide, it's 1844. How do we get that? Friends, we have to add a year to 1843 to get to AD 1844, because there was no year zero when we went from BC to AD. Let me explain that for a moment. The year zero always had to be added as it was forgotten in the Julian calendar. There was no year zero. It went negative three, negative two, negative one BC, then it went one AD, two AD, three AD, etc. You can see here, there was no year zero between BC before Christ and AD. Anno Domini just means the year of our Lord. Um, Most people say AD just means after the death of Jesus, but it's actually Anno Domini. Well, who did the calendar and when was it done? And how did the year zero get left out? Well, you do some uh, research on this uh, online. But from what I can understand, the BCAD calendar was created in 525 AD by Scythian monk, yeah, try saying this, Dionysius Exegius. So friends, when he was working 500 years after the event, the fact that the year zero wasn't put in was probably um, quite Understandable, but then in other sources it says that the Romans never had a year zero, they had 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 multiples of 10, but they never had a year zero. So, friends, let's have a look here on the chart. In going over the 2300 day prophecy, if you take 457 BC from 2300 years, the reverse of what we did before, you end up with 1843. You've got one year missing because there's no year zero when going from BC to AD. So once you add in one year, you come to the finishing date of the prophecy, which is AD 1844. I hope that was interesting, and now you can understand why the year 457 was chosen from the other dates. It's a solid date. It's an accurate date, because if we don't have the right starting date, we won't have the what? The right finishing date. Amen. What would happen at the end of the first 69 weeks? We're in question 23, halfway down page six. Daniel says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem. And then he says, unto Messiah or until Messiah the Prince, there would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. He actually means there until the Prince would step forward and become the Messiah, There'd be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What would happen at the end of the first 69 weeks? Then the prince would become the Messiah. Daniel 9.25 tells us that from the commandment to restore Jerusalem in 457 BC until Messiah the prince comes, there will be, have a look on the screen, seven weeks plus 62 weeks. So we have seven weeks plus 62 weeks. Or a total of sixty nine weeks times seven days in a week or four hundred and eighty three years until Messiah would come. Now if we add four hundred and eighty-three years to four five seven, we will arrive at the calendar year AD twenty seven. It's on the screen, as the time for the appearance of the Messiah. Now I've got a question that I want to ask. I'd love to be able to hear your Answers, why did the angel Gabriel split up the 69-week prophecy into two periods of 7 and 62? The seven weeks there refer to some building work. I've got some brick colour, orange, and the 62 of the colour of blood refers to something to do with the death of Jesus. In Daniel 9.25, we're going to work out why it split up into 7 and 62. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Repentant. The prince there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in trouble troublesome times. friends the seven weeks was when they went back it took 49 years seven sevens of 49 until 49 years for them to rebuild the city and the temple why did it take 49 years because the street would be built and the wall even in troublesome times so can you imagine building a house you put a brick down and you get a spear thrown at you or an arrow flies past your ear and so the jews took a long time they had to have guards put there they were ducking and diving around the warfare from the samaritans and the marauders who taken over the ruins of the city of babylon and so 457 bc minus 408 bc when the, uh, the city and the sanctuary and the wall were finished is 49 years, which is the seven weeks. And so we now know why it's broken up into seven weeks and then 62 weeks. I'm going to read the note under the uh, middle of the page, the illustration there. The word Messiah is a Hebrew word meaning the anointed one. What does that mean? Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit for his ministry at his baptism. Now, I don't know if you looked up these texts here in the lesson guide, Luke 3, 21, 22, and Acts 10, 38, but let's have a look at it. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was open. In Luke 3, 21, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit deten- descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. What actually happened at Jesus' baptism? It's kind of implied here, but it's not explicit. So... Uh, Luke writes it very clearly in Acts 10.38, what happened at Jesus' baptism, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. He what? He anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. And Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Friends, look on the screen. Messiah became the anointed one. The prince became the anointed one. He became the Messiah in AD 27 at his baptism. Question 24, what was the first message that Jesus announced after his baptism in Mark 1 14 and verse 15? Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The time is up. I've come on time. Friends, our God is a God of time. He's not late. He's not early. He's right on time. Amen. God's prophetic time clock had struck. Jesus appeared on the scene of the action at the very time Jesus foretold. The Bible foretold Jesus was baptized in AD 27 in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. I'm going to stop reading the note there. Have a look on the page. So Jesus is baptized in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Verse uh, 21, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was baptized also. So, friends, how do we work out this AD 27 from history? Is that the right date when Jesus was baptized? Did you think about that? The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar? We're told it was exactly 27 AD. Well, we better know when he was, when he began to reign. So, the history books tell us that Tiberius Caesar began to reign in AD 12. So, let's do some maths. So, we got um, AD 12 and we had 15 and um, Yeah, two and five is seven, Uh, carry the one, and one is two. Ah, yes, it's the 27 AD. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar is exactly 27 AD. Jesus was baptized absolutely on time. So have a look here on the screen. Here is one of the most amazing time prophecies of the Bible. The Bible actually predicted the very year of the baptism of Jesus right on time. And this was 500 years beforehand by the prophet Daniel, who was in Babylon. Now friends, this is not in the lesson. This is some extra. I wanna just go over the changeover from the BC to the AD reckoning and show you a problem here. I wonder if you notice this, what happened in going from BC to AD? Well, here's the chart. So friends, you'll notice here that it goes negative two BC, negative one BC, one AD, two AD and onwards. I've got in the red box, there's no year zero. We must add one year for the year zero when going from a BC to an AD date. For example, we got our 483 years minus 457 BC, takes us to AD 26. We have to add one year for no year zero and gives us 27 AD. Now we have a problem, we have a problem. Here's the problem. I don't know if you saw this, have a look on the screen. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized, when was he baptized? According to the prophecy, AD 27. Now, in Luke 3, verse 23, it says, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. Did any of you realize why Jesus needed to be 30 before he could become the Messiah? Does anyone remember the age of men in the Old Testament when they became priests. They had to be how old? They had to be 30, isn't that interesting? And Jesus one day would become not only our priest, but he would become our high priest. So that's not a problem, that Jesus is going to become our high priest, and our priest, um, it explains why he had to wait till he was 30 years of age to begin his ministry. Friends, what the problem is, is that Jesus Christ here is 30 years of age in AD 27. So what's going on here? Jesus is 30 years old in AD 27 at his baptism. So he must have been born around negative three or four BC. Okay, so Dionysius Exegius, 500 years later, did not get the BC AD date totally located on the birth of Jesus, because he just probably couldn't. Um, They didn't have the, the absolute reckoning that we have today. So can I prove that Jesus was born around three or four BC? To back up what we're showing you in this prophecy, I can. Have a look on the screen. Here's King Herod. That Christ was not born in AD 1 is evident from the fact that when Jesus was born, Herod the Great, King Herod the Great of the Jews, was still alive, and Herod died in 4 BC. So that's really interesting, isn't it? And that backs up exactly what we've just showed you. We go to question 25 at the bottom of page 6. What was ultimately to happen to the Messiah in Daniel 9.26? And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be what? He would be cut off, but not for himself. He would not die for his own sins, he would die for the sins of the many. He would be cut off. We're at the top of page 7. The Bible not only predicted the baptism of Christ but even predicted that Christ would die. But notice that it says not for himself. His death would be a substitutionary death for the entire human race. How long does the Messiah confirm the covenant with the Jews for in Daniel 9:27? And Jesus shall confirm a covenant, the agreement of the 490 years with many for how long? One week. But in the middle of the week, Jesus would bring an end to the sacrifices and the offering in the Old Testament sanctuary. How long does Messiah confirm the covenant with the Jews? The answer is one week. Now, friends, I need to remind you here that Jesus died in the middle of a prophetic week of seven years. He did not die on Wednesday because some people wrongly hold to a Wednesday crucifixion. He died in the middle of the week, a Wednesday crucifixion. It's a fanciful theory, but it's not correct. We know that Jesus died exactly on time, on the Good Friday, which was the day of the crucifixion. And that is well attested to in history. He died in the midst of a prophetic week of seven years. The note says one week is seven days or seven years seven years added to ad 27 brings us to ad 34 during this seven year period the gospel was to be confirmed to the jewish people 27 what does the messiah do in the middle of this last week in daniel 927 but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering what does that mean the messiah what's he doing that middle of the last week jesus would bring an end to sacrifices and offerings let me read the note have a look on the screen in the middle of this final week three and a half years after christ began his ministry he was to cause the sacrifice to cease in other words he was to bring an end to the sacrificial system jesus accomplished this by his death upon the cross three and a half years after he began his ministry in the spring of ad 31. as jesus hung upon the cross the temple curtain was torn in two indicating the end of the sacrificial system. Let me pause there. Notice on the screen, Mark 15, 38, you can write this in. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain or in two from the top to the bottom. Now, friends, do you know how thick the temple curtain was? I'm asking who ripped it? Josephus says it was four inches thick. Hmm. So I assume that God himself, or he sent a angel to tear that curtain open to show that the Shekinah glory in the sanctuary there, the temple in Jerusalem, that God's presence had left. Why? Because Jesus Christ had died on the cross. The real sacrifice, the true Lamb of God, John one twenty nine had come to take away the sin of the world. No more lambs needed be sacrificed. As Jesus hung upon the cross, the temple curtain was torn in two, indicating the end of the sacrificial system. Jesus, have a look on the screen, the Lamb of God has died. No longer was there any need for animal sacrifices. Only one person could ever stop animal sacrifices, and that was the one who became a sacrifice himself. Notice there, the Lamb ran away, the priest died drops the knife from the nerveless hand because he's afraid as he sees this massive curtain ripped from the top to the bottom and no Shekinah glory come out. He was expecting to be cured by the presence of God and the lamb ran away because the true lamb of God had died for the sins of the world. For three and a half years after the death of Christ, the disciples labored mainly for the Jewish people, but it was a failure. However, in AD 34, the Jewish nation sealed their rejection of the gospel by the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The persecution begun at this time caused Christians to scatter everywhere and preach the gospel everywhere. You can find that in Acts 7 and Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. Friends, the time has finished. The 490 years, the 70 weeks or 490 years is finished. What happened? Have a look on the screen when the 70 weeks ended number one stephen the first christian martyr was killed god was tired of his people killing his prophets they killed isaiah they put him in a log and sawed him in half and then there was jeremiah and he was killed and then jesus was killed on the cross the vineyard owner's son, remember Jesus' parable to the Jews? They killed the son. And now they're killing Stephen, the first evangelist in the early Christian church. And God said, right, I gave you 490 years to shape up or ship out. It's all over. Because in point number two, the Jewish leaders had rejected the gospel. They'd rejected the lamb of God on the cross. They rejected everything to do with the kingdom of heaven and God's plan for them. They were running their own program. And they said, It's expedient that one man, Jesus Christ, should die for the nation rather than they all perish with the Romans. And so point number three then came from those first two points. God now turns and takes the gospel through Peter and Paul and the apostles and it's preached to the non-Jews. It's preached to the Gentiles. The time period has ended. So what's happened here? The significance of the sacrificial system came to an end with the sacrifice of the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When type met anti-type. Friends, that is a very, very powerful statement. Well, we're coming down to the end of our lesson. It's been a big lesson. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's very, very detailed. And tonight we've been able to prove that God's word is accurate. It's true. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. When does the 2,300-day prophecy end in Daniel 8:14? Unto 2,300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And so it ends in AD 1844. Have a look on the screen. Remember the 70 weeks or 490 years have been cut off from the longer period of 2,300 years. So if we subtract 490 from 2,300 years, we have 1,810 years left. Adding the 1810 years left to AD 34, we arrive at the year 1844, which would be the conclusion to the 2300 year prophecy. Friends, if you get the right starting date, you get the right finishing date. A right protology leads to a correct and reliable eschatology. Question 29, what was to happen in 1844 at the end of the 2300 days? The angel tells Daniel unto 2,300 days, then shall God's sanctuary in heaven be cleansed, it will be restored, it will be cleansed or restored. We're at the top of the back page. Friends, we have examined the longest time prophecy in the Bible, stretching all the way from Daniel's day to ours. Have a look on the screen. From 457 BC to AD 1844. What happened in the middle of the 19th century as this great prophecy came to an end? In order to understand what took place in AD 1844, we'll need to study what the Bible says the sanctuary is. In Daniel 8.14, it tells us that at this time, the sanctuary will be cleansed. The next two lessons will give the amazing details of what happened in 1844. Friends, since the year 1844, we've been living in what the Bible calls God's judgment out. Jesus is coming very, very soon, sooner than most people think. And as you look around what's happening on the earth, especially in the last two years, you can see that Jesus Christ is near. He's even at the doors. So I'm asking you to join me next week in Lesson 14 for what is the sanctuary. I'm going to show you Jesus Christ in the Old Testament sanctuary, how it points to him. And then the following week, we're going to be looking in the next two lessons. We'll give the amazing details of what happened in AD 1844. Well, our last question tonight is, are you thankful that the Bible predicted so clearly the baptism and crucifixion of Jesus? I'm writing, absolutely yes. You know, friends, I started with this question. If people ask you, how do we know that the Bible is true? Tonight, I've showed you the answer. The 70-week prophecy and the 2300-day prophecy proves the Bible's true. That Jesus came on time in AD 27, he Appeared and was anointed as the Messiah, the Redeemer of the world. He died on time in AD 31. In AD 34, the Jews were rejected as being the special people of God, individual Jews can be saved under the blood of Jesus Christ, no problem. And then the gospel was released from the Jewish nation that kept it to themselves. And it was released out to all the peoples of the earth known as Gentiles. And so in 1844, there's a special judgment hour that we're living in. That's going to be explained in the next few lessons. So my theme questions as we close. How long would it take for the sanctuary to be cleansed? Well, you know the answer, don't you? 2300 days or 2300 years. In Bible prophecy, a day can also represent what? A day can stand for a prophetic year. Not every day stands for a year. Only a prophetic day stands for a prophetic year. Well how much time was given to the Jews to follow God's plan? 70 weeks times 7 days. They were given 490 days or years to shape up or ship out and that time finished in AD 34 and began, I hope you can remember the date, in 4, 5, 7 when? BC. Well why was the 69 weeks named 62 and 7? Well, the seven weeks, or the 49 years, were for the rebuilding of the city and temple. So God even predicted when Jerusalem would be finished being built. The city, the wall, and the temple were all done in, uh, in that year, 508 BC. Sorry, 408 BC. Finally, if Jesus came on time and died on time, he will return on time. That is the second time. Jesus is coming back on time. He's a God of time. Thank you so much tonight for putting your name on Prophecy Seminar Lesson Number 12. It's great to get those tonight as you send them in. And I keep up with the scores. Response questions tonight. If this lesson was clear and made sense to you, would you tick box number one? Number two, if you're thankful that Jesus Christ came on time, died on time, and you want to renew your commitment to Him as your Lord and Saviour, please play a tick in box number two. All right, our quiz questions tonight. There are four of one and one of the other. So I hope that gives you a a bit of a a hint, a bit of a clue. Number one, the prophecy of Daniel 8 begins in Medo-Persia rather than in Babylon. Would that be true or false? Thank you for writing true or false. Prophecy of Daniel 8 begins in Medo-Persia rather than in Babylon. Number two, the little horn of Daniel 8 represents both pagan and papal Rome. The LHP in Daniel 8 is pagan and papal Rome. Number three, the 2,300 days are explained and interpreted in Daniel 9. True or false? Number four, the Bible foretold the very year of the baptism and crucifixion of Christ. True or false? Number five, the 2,300-year-day prophecy ended in the year 1944. True or false? False. All right, I think those are all pretty clear and straightforward. Let's go through the answers. Question number one, the prophecy of Daniel 8 begins in Medo-Persia rather in Babylon. That is true. Little Horn power is pagan and papal. That's true. 2,300 days are explained. That's true. Bible foretold the year of Jesus' baptism and crucifixion, AD 27 and AD 31. That's true. The 2,300-year-day prophecy ends in the year 1844. There's a trick question. How did you go? That would have to be false. The year was 1844. Friends in our wall of truth we've looked tonight at Daniel chapter 8 verses 14. How long will the vision be? We found that God and Jesus run on time. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. He's not going to be late for the second coming. Please take some time out to prepare lesson number 14. It's going to be great to be together next week. I just want to take a preview of what we're doing next week. Have a look on the screen. I've got all these beautiful digital images of the Old Testament sanctuary, God uh, igniting the altar there, the altar of burnt offering. We're going to take you into the courtyard of the ancient Old Testament sanctuary and also inside to the beautiful ornaments and show you how Jesus Christ is found in the sanctuary. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how amazing is this longest time prophecy of scripture. The 490 and the 2300 years, Lord, are absolutely amazing. They show us that you're a God of time, that you're interested in hearing and answering our prayers as you did for Daniel. Father, sometimes you make us wait, but that is all a part of your plan to make us patient and to make us depend more and lean harder on Jesus. I thank you for your love, your mercy, and grace. Bless everyone who hears these words. I ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, or one word, That's True Blue SDA.
1: This program has
0: been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.